Well, it's great to be together, and uh, if you are new here, we've been in a series in the book of Acts. We're going to be carrying on this morning in chapter 8, so if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there uh, from verse 26. But just to orientate us a little bit, uh, in Acts chapter 6, what we saw is uh, the first kind of deacons being appointed, and uh, these seven men getting set apart and the church growing as a result. And what we've looked at is two of the deacons. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Stephen, who uh, kind of got martyred for his faith and became the first martyr of the Christian church. And last two weeks, we've been looking at Philip and everything God has been doing through him. And this morning, we've come to such an encouraging part of the scripture where God uses him in the salvation of an African Ethiopian man. So encouraging, and just uh, as a way of just saying, it, this is kind of what happens when deacons get put in place in, in this part of Scripture, right? Like, they get put in place, and the gospel is breaking barriers and even moving uh, beyond uh, geographical locations of just Jerusalem. We've seen the last few uh, chapters that now it's moving beyond into the outermost parts of the world. And uh, this morning, as I said, it's just an amazing story of God using this man Philip in the life of this Ethiopian uh, eunuch. Um, in a nutshell, what we're going to be looking at is simply this, that God is a pursuing, redeeming God. He is an evangelistic God. You may have not thought of God like that. Maybe you think like evangelism is something he gives to his church to do on his behalf, but actually no, that's, it's something he is and something he does. And so he's pursuing people and he calls his church to participate in his mission for our own joy and for the salvation of many. And so we're going to read this together and then unpack it as we go. Acts chapter 8 from verse 26 to 40. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, Get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, and a high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or someone else? For Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus beginning with that scripture. And as they were traveling down the road, they came to water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? So he ordered the chariot to stop, 
And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized them. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer. But he went on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared in Azotus, and he was traveling and preaching the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Isn't this just an amazing account of salvation, evangelism, and, and I'm sure you maybe have heard some kind of story, even if it's a second or third hand story of God doing the same thing today. It's just so encouraging when God kind of works like this, isn't it? But I, I know my heart and I know your hearts, maybe you're hearing evangelism this morning and you're thinking like, I'm great, that the, I'm glad that that happens, but like I'm also glad it's not me. Like I know some of us just get the cold sweats when we think about evangelism, right? It's, it's uh, something that puts a fear into our, some of our hearts, and we'd rather leave it to the professionals. And uh, I don't make it a, a habit of telling other people's stories, but I think this one was really helpful. Um, some of you uh, may know Ross Lester, who's a pastor at BBC, a great guy before his family sent him to the States, or God sent him to the States. And um, he told this story one day that was really helpful for us. If you know Ross, you know he's got a wicked sense of humor. He tells the story of getting on an airplane, and uh, he gets on the airplane, I can't remember where they were going, some neighboring uh, African country, gets on the airplane, uh, gets to his seat, and he does what every good introvert does, right? You, you kind of keep your head down, you put your earphones in, and you don't make uh, eye contact with the person sitting next to you, and you just you pray quietly that no one wants to talk to you. Right? That's what every good introvert does. And so he's settling in there with his earphones in, probably reading a book or something like that, and he overhears a conversation a few rows up from him about Jesus. It intrigues him, so he takes out his earphones, starts listening in, and cut a long story short, at the end of this flight, these two guys uh, are kneeling in the middle of the airline aisle, and the one guy's giving his life to Jesus, like in the flight, and he's listening to this saying, this is amazing, but he's feeling so convicted that he chose to kind of sat there, sit there in silence and hunker down while this guy's being the evangelist. And here's the punchline, is that Ross was on his way to an evangelism conference to preach on effective evangelism. Now look, I, I, I'm not even making fun of the dude. I just like resonate with that, don't you? I think, like I said, it just, it terrifies us. It terrifies us to think of it. But you see, God has called us to this. It's part of what He's called us to become, and, and we want to grow in this as a church. And uh, I just put this discipleship circle up here. You may not have even seen this this year, but this is part of our vision of who we want to become as a church, right? We, what does it mean to become a disciple of Jesus and grow as a disciple of Jesus and live as a disciple of Jesus? This is some of how we define it. This is what the marks of discipleship look like. And you'll see one of the slices of the pie there at the top is to be evangelistic, right? Because it's who God is. It's who Jesus was. It's, it's what He calls us to become more like. And so we've even put it there at the center of the pie. We've used the word multiplying because our heart and our prayer and our hope is that God would do in someone else's life through us what He's done in our life, right? We, he's, he's been so kind to us and so gracious to us. And so as a church, our, our mission statement reflects that. It just says, beginning with Joburg, Parker's Community Church exists to help more people love, follow, and enjoy Jesus. We, 
We use that word more intentionally. We want to see this multiplication happen. Like we say, you know, we, we don't see all of Acts happening today, but if there's any way of Acts, if there's any one thing we see of Acts happening again today, our prayer is that it would be this. Lots of people coming to faith in Jesus and putting and surrendering their lives to his grace. So again, just before we dig in and unpack the scripture, I just want to double down on this. Where does this missional impulse come from? It's not just a church strategy. It's not a growth strategy. It's not a business thing. It's because it's in the very heart of God. It's who he is. He is the evangelistic king. He is the one who has come to seek and save the lost. And he calls us to participate in his mission. But it's his mission. He's the one going before us. He's the one already on the move. And you can even see it in this chapter, this, these verses that we've read. You've got Philip the evangelist, you've got the Ethiopian convert, and you've got God, the one who was working even before uh, the angel came to Philip in this Ethiopian man's life to bring him to a place of salvation and draw him to himself. Man, God is working. So this is what we're going to be looking at this morning as we unpack this text. Acts 8, 26 to 40. God is an evangelistic God. And his evangelistic heart, I think what we're going to just be looking at here is his evangelistic heart produces fruit in four, in four ways. As We work through the text. The first thing is this. How does his mission go forward? laborers are sent. He sends laborers. God is sending his people, us, Parkhurst, to join with him in evangelism and be part of what he's doing in the salvation of many people. And you see it here with Philip. It's amazing. It starts in supernatural ways. He, it says in verse 26 that an angel came, an angel came and spoke to Philip and told him what to do. It just says, uh, head south, basically. Go on the road that heads from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, that road is really long. Like, if it was me, I would be asking for a bit more clarity, like a bit more specificity, like where on the road exactly. It's, it's a really long road, many kilometers. Like, who exactly am I supposed to look out for? What is it you want me to say? But you don't see that with Philip. You just see an openness and a surrender of his life and an obedience to the prompting of God in his heart. He just goes. God says, go. He says, all right, you'll, I'm going to trust you to show me the next step when I get there. And he does. When, he, when he's on the road, you can imagine this guy is Philip. He's walking the road. He's praying. He's listening. He's saying, God, who is it? Who is it? Why did you call me here? What do you want me to do? And he sees a chariot, and he just feels the Spirit talk to him and say, yeah, that chariot, go to that chariot. That's why I've called you here. And we'll unpack a bit of the effects of it later, but I just want to look for a moment at Philip's obedience and response to the sending of God in his life, because this is for us today as well. He's listening and obedient to the prompting of the Spirit. Now listen, evangelism, church, can still happen like this. But God calls us to be evangelistic generally and just to talk about Jesus when there's opportunity, when it's appropriate, when we can, with anyone who would listen, as it were. But sometimes God 
points out specific situations, specific opportunities with specific people that he's already prepared for us to engage with at that moment and gives us the grace of just saying, all right, it's not, I'm not just taking a chance to whoever would listen. God has made, made this moment an appointment of grace to meet with someone for their salvation. And that's what we're seeing here. It's maybe less normative, but it does happen. It does happen. And it starts with maybe Philip's openness to the leading of the Spirit as he listens to where God would send him and how God would use him. I just want to take a quick detour here because I think it's so encouraging in this text and important for who we are as a church. We, we really love the Bible, the gospel, and the Spirit. We love all of them. And they're not in competition as, as, some, as some people kind of uh, make them out to be, like the Bible and the Spirit, like we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. No, no, we love the Spirit too. And we believe that they go together, right? And that's what you're seeing in this passage. You see the Spirit of God at work in Philip, in this man. He, Philip is living as a Spirit-empowered disciple, evangelizing the nations. And even this man right here, he's explaining the gospel, exalting Jesus. And he's doing it on the basis of what God reveals about himself through Scripture. You see, so the Spirit... And, and being a spirit-empowered disciple is not an anti-Bible. In fact, this same Bible that we love, that we believe, is inerrant, perfect, inspired, authoritative, actually demonstrates spirit-empowered living and encourages spirit-empowered living in his disciples. And so it's not, it's not a weird thing that's going on here. I believe we may not see angels coming to us, but we will feel, if we're listening, the promptings of the Spirit in our lives. And we can live like that for all of life, but it is needed perhaps most in evangelism. And you see, there's a challenge for us in this. It is true that laborers are still sent, and God still sends His people and not just overseas, Doug was talking about the other day, nothing changes when you get on a plane. We're called to live like this day by day. Let's just see what uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37 to 38. This is Jesus' assessment of what's around us, right? What's going up on around us, the gospel opportunity around us. Even when we don't think that this is true, this is what Jesus says. He says, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So what should we do? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Right, this isn't for the Navy SEAL team Christian. It's for ordinary, unimpressive people like you and me. And so there's so many different scriptures about this, but I just want to read one more. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, therefore, we are, every Christian, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. See, what's amazing about these two verses here? is that there are descriptions given about not what Christians should do, but who Christians are. 
It's amazing. You get called a laborer and an ambassador. That implies that you got a job and that you stand for something. You represent something. Whether we do it well or not is another issue, right? But it's not something, it's not uh, God's best tips for how to live well. It's identity. This is who Christians are. And so the call in evangelism is just, isn't to do something on God's behalf. It's to be who we are. We are ambassadors. We are laborers in the harvest. And if that gives you anxiety, would I remind us, we are also spirit-empowered, and it comes with God's help and grace. The pressure's off. He's the one who does the work, remember? He's the evangelizer. We just get to participate. But it's a joyful thing we're participating in here. And I just felt as I was praying over this that we really need God to awaken or reawaken or even give us a fresh conviction of our role in this. We, we just become blinded and distracted and confused and uh, caught up with the so many different things we have going on which are important and God wants to help us with that we forget that actually the salvation of people around us who we love is a way God wants to use us. And I think God just might want to reawaken, as I said, stir in us a fresh desire to be used by Him in the salvation of some people. God doesn't just use the professionals. He uses the ordinary, unimpressive people like me and like you. And I just know that some of us are sitting here this morning because someone did that in your life, right? So I know that some of us are sitting here today because someone had the courage and boldness to just start a simple gospel conversation with us that led to us actually putting our faith in Jesus, getting plugged into his local church, and desiring to be used by God in the same way in, some, in the life of someone else. It's incredible what God has done for us, right? And he continues to send out laborers and continues to build his church. That's what, that's what God is doing. It's how he builds his church. Uh, just one quick thought on this. God had sent an angel to Philip. It would have been a much more effective evangelism method, a much more efficient, should I say, evangelism method, for, for God to just send the angel straight to the Ethiopian. Right? The angel goes straight to the Ethiopian, explain uh, the Scriptures to him, tell him about Jesus, get him saved, done. It would be one much more efficient, much quicker, Lacquer. You can God just sends angels around the place doing the work. But it's not how God works, right? He sends his church. It's, it's an inefficient evangelism method, but there is no plan B. God has appointed and decided that evangelism would be the normative method of how the gospel spreads and how people would hear the gospel and how people would put their faith into Jesus. And even behind that, he's the one at work opening eyes to see him, making hearts hungry to desire him, and helping us as we talk about Jesus. But there is no plan B. Laborers are sent out. Church, you are a laborer. You are an ambassador. It's who I am. Let's pray that God will help us with this, right? Second thing our evangelistic God does is simply this. Laborers are sent. Seekers are saved. Seekers are saved. You see what happens with this Ethiopian man. And God's grace at work in his life. Maybe even God's grace at work in your life this morning. 
It's really encouraging. This Ethiopian man comes back from worshiping in Jerusalem. That's what the text tells us. And uh, he doesn't seem satisfied. Well, let's just take a moment to get in this guy's shoes. He doesn't seem satisfied, and we know that because he is now uh, searching for more in the Scriptures. He, he's devouring, it would seem, the Scriptures. He, he's, try, he's searching. He's got questions. He's traveled all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. That's a massive journey, no airplanes, to participate in worship and seek God. He's still hungry, it would seem. And in the great uh, words of the prophet Bono, he still hasn't found what he's looking for. And we can, that's my dry humor for the day. And he can, we can deduct a few things about who this guy was, right? And how we get to this conclusion. And I think it's convicting maybe a little bit for some of us. We know that this guy was wealthy. It says in the text he was in charge of Queen Candace's treasury. And just how things would roll there is that kings were in Ethiopia were viewed as like sun gods. And so they were deities and shouldn't um, get involved with daily human operations. And so the queens were the ones in charge of everything. And so this guy, um, the Ethiopian man, is in charge of Queen Candace's treasury. He's literally the minister of finance. He's got all the money he wants at his disposal. He could afford to buy a Bible. He's got all the money he wants, and yet here he is still seeking God. You see, he understands that money isn't going to give him what his heart is longing for. It's not going to come from money. He also knows it's not going to come from his education and his intelligence. He's a smart guy. He can read the Bible in what would have been a Greek translation of the Old Testament. He can read in a language that's not his mother tongue, which is amazing. But he understands, even as he's smart, he's not, his intelligence doesn't make him self-sufficient. He's still searching and longing for more. And perhaps most poignantly here is, is that he is a eunuch. So that means he's been castrated. Either by force would happen sometimes if the royal family saw someone as a threat. They do it by force to limit what they could um, do and just, you know, that the threat's taken care of. But a lot of guys, and the commentators I read, said it's likely that this man did it by choice. And the reason he'd do it by choice is simply to get ahead in his career. See, by, by doing it, it would prove his loyalty to the royal family, and it would limit the distractions of kids and, and wife and family, and he could fully devote himself to his work. And so he did it probably early on so that he could climb the ladder quicker and get further along in his career. He's made massive sacrifices, this guy, massive sacrifices. And yet his heart is still empty, and he's come here searching and longing for more. He just knows that hankering after promotions and recognition is not going to fill the void in his heart. It's not going to give him what he's longing for. More than that, as a eunuch, he's come all this way to worship in the temple, and yet he wouldn't have been allowed in because eunuchs weren't allowed into the temple. And so he's disappointed. He's sad. He's feeling broken, maybe even in pain. We don't really know, but what we do know, he's come with great 
hope and expectation to worship God, and, and he couldn't do that. He is a spiritual seeker, though, and God has been at work in his life, pointing out the hollowness of looking to all these other things. Maybe that's you this morning, just as an encouragement. God is maybe you at work in your life, helping you feel and see the hollowness of looking to all these other things, wealth, career, uh, people in an ultimate sense, and making you spiritually hungry in the, in the way that you would look to him. See, you see, this Ethiopian seems to have realized or gotten to a place of realizing the bankruptcy of looking to other things. And it's that famous C.S. Lewis quote, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. So we were made for another world. Maybe that's some of what God allows us to go through. Is he, he allows us to feel the disappointment and satisfaction of looking to other things to help draw us to himself and look up. And so this guy has come here thinking that he's seeking God, but behind it, God is actually seeking him. It's amazing. Just take a moment with me to just think about the ways God was at work preparing this guy's heart. Like while he was thousands of miles away in another country that hadn't heard the gospel yet, this guy is becoming hungry. Somehow, spiritually hungry, somehow he hears that this good news is in Jerusalem. I don't know how he heard it, trade routes probably. He hears that something's going, is going on there, something amazing spiritual is happening there, and he just has to get there because he, he's hungry. He wants to be part of it. He wants to have his soul satisfied. So he gets in and he goes comes all the way to Jerusalem. Then, then God makes sure that a copy of the Scriptures gets put in his hand. Then God sends Philip to him to explain Christ. Then he gets baptized. Like It's a progression of God's grace at work in this guy's life. There's that amazing poem called The Hound of Heaven. And it's a, it's a description of what God is. He's relentless in his pursuit of his people. We may resist him for a while, but God will get his people. Jesus says, I will lose none that the Father has given me. All who are mine will come to me, is essentially what he's saying. It's amazing. God was at work drawing this guy to himself. And again, I just want to encourage us. If that's you this morning, there's a joy for us in looking to and trusting in Jesus. Again, maybe again, maybe for the first time. We can look to him and trust that this unexplainable spiritual hunger in our hearts that we don't know where it's coming from, God is, is putting it into our hearts to help us look to Him and trust Him and even become part of His church family. It's, it's how He seeks the seekers. It's how He builds a community. They become, they move from being seekers to being part of a local church family. And it's amazing I think one of the reasons why the story of this Ethiopian convert here is in uh, the Bible at this point, particularly of Acts, is to just remind us it's not just for Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus says, you will be my disciples in Jerusalem, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. So there is no one that gets excluded from this gospel of grace. All kinds of people all over the earth, if you've ever felt unworthy or that God can't love you, 
this is an encouraging story. The, the, the people here of this day would have heard an Ethiopian eunuch. Okay, God's grace is for everyone. No one gets left out. It's encouraging for us this morning. And God sends Philip to this guy to help him trust in Jesus. Thirdly, laborers are sent, seekers are saved, Jesus is magnified. God brings his good news to this broken guy and to us as broken people. See, God is working in his heart. He's been excluded from the temple. He says, well, okay, fine, I'll do it myself. He takes the money he has access to, he buys himself a Bible. And he reads the scriptures. And God is at work in his heart here. It's just, it's so amazing here that I think just something for us to bank that he couldn't see it, but Philip helped him see it, that all of Scripture is pointing to Jesus. Not, not just the New Testament, the Old too. He only had the New Testament right here, right now, right? Is that some people think the Old Testament is just uh, the book of laws and the hard and nasty stuff. The New Testament is the good stuff. We have to remember the Bible is one book. The Old Testament points to the New Testament. It, it helps us see Jesus. It prepares us for Jesus. There's that old saying that says, I have to remember it now. The, the New Testament is in the old concealed, and the Old Testament is in the new revealed. It's one book telling one story. All Scripture is ultimately about Jesus. It's either preparing us for Jesus, prophesying about Jesus, presenting us with Jesus, or showing us what it looks like to participate with him. It's all about Jesus. And this guy uh, is seeing Jesus in this text. I mean, some, some texts are very difficult to see Jesus. You read it and you think, what in the world is going on here? How does the gospel connect to this? Other texts are obvious and explicit. And such is the, the grace of God on this guy that he would find himself reading Isaiah 53, one of the most explicit portions of the Old Testament about Jesus and about the cross. It's incredible. We'll look at it in a moment, but it just says that it's a very encouraging text. It talks about God's victory for his people, a suffering people, God's victory for them. It's a, it's a section about hope, about joy, about God's promise to bring justice, about all these amazing things. But here's the important bit. It all hinges on one thing, one person, and it's what is known as the suffering servant. It's about Jesus. And what it's saying is, it's a prophetic word about Jesus, that God's victory for his people would come at the murder of his son, the suffering servant, this lamb who was slain, so that we would be forgiven and set free, and as a result, have comfort and joy and hope and an outpouring of his justice on his son and to come for us. And so Jesus died so that we can have our sins forgiven and access to God and all the blessings that come from a relationship with him. Now just imagine this guy, if we go back into his story and just see how the gospel may have landed on him this morning. I don't know if you've felt in, at, at any moment that the gospel is great news, but it just can't be good news for me. I'm just not worthy. I'm not good enough. I've, I've done too many bad things. 
I've exhausted grace. I've run out of grace. My second chances are done now. Like I had a quota, they're done, I'm, I'm finished. But God can't love me. I'm so glad he loves other people. But he can't love me. Maybe you've just felt unworthy. You can imagine this guy feeling this way. Feeling like a foreigner, feeling like an excluded eunuch. And we don't know how much of Isaiah he was reading, right? Back then, they didn't have chapter and verse numbers. We're only told that he's reading that portion. We don't know how widely, but some of the commentators say it's likely he probably got all the way to Isaiah 56. See what Isaiah 56 says to this guy who feels unworthy. This eunuch, this, who, that was his whole identity, and it was a source of him feeling excluded and unworthy. See what God says to him. It's amazing. The eunuch should not say, look, I'm a dried up tree. You ever feel like a dried up tree? Just good for nothing? For the Lord says this, for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and who choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name Better than sons and daughters. Better, better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. It's amazing, isn't it? This guy who's feeling uh, likely abandoned and excluded, God comes and preaches the gospel over him, even back in the Old Testament Isaiah. Just remind us the beauty of this and the power of this, how it lands on him. I'm sure how Philip may have even preached this to him. Is that his whole life, this, this thing of being a eunuch, of, of, of what his scars, literal scars, have done to define him, Philip says, no, you're not defined by your scars. Your scars don't exclude you. Jesus' scars are what wins you. You're not defined by your scars. You're defined by his scars. And so I'm sure they would have read in Isaiah 53 verse 5. It's talking about Jesus. But he was pierced for our rebellion and crushed because of our iniquity. And the punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. I think there's just something in that for us here. Whatever is defining you, whatever you think is keeping you from God, There is nothing that can match the redemptive scars and wounds of our King and Savior, Jesus. He has decided who he brings home. And if you trust in his name, that's what he has done for us on the cross. It's an an amazing news for those who are broken or carrying pain or feeling alone and desperate. It's this amazing news that we have a Savior in Jesus. That we have a King who has come. We have a friend like no other who... We have a king and a suffering servant who knows what it's like to suffer and who promises to never leave us nor forsake us and will not abandon us because he's come to be a redeemer and win us to himself. It's just an amazing a message of grace to us. If you've ever felt unworthy, friend, just look to Christ again today. His wounds have paid the price to purchase you and win you home. You are his. And he has given you a name. What does it say there to the eunuch? He's given you a name better than sons and daughters. 
an everlasting name that will never be cut off, never be cut off, secure forever in his love. Right, just as we close, God's evangelistic grace sees that witnesses are formed. And it's just so encouraging how this thing ends and his response to this message of the gospel. Remember back at the start of Acts, uh, verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 8, this is Jesus speaking, and this is what he's proclaiming over his disciples and even his church. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so what we're seeing is in this passage, Philip being a witness, proclaiming Jesus, uh, preaching the gospel, and we continue to see it in this passage also in the eunuchs or this Ethiopian's baptism. His baptism is a witness to the grace of Jesus. It's an amazing moment, and we just want to, I want to unpack that together. It just says there in verse 36, as they were traveling down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? What we're seeing here is that when Philip unpacked the scriptures and showed Jesus from all scriptures, what what it's implying is that he included baptism as part of what it looks like to put your faith into Jesus. It was like an obvious assumption. It doesn't tell us how or a second step thing. It's almost so so kind of obvious that the eunuch is like, okay, so if I I, I become a Christian, I put my trust in Jesus, and then I get baptized. Like, it's a package deal. It's so obvious that he doesn't wait. He sees water, and he says, right, let's go swimming. He gets, gets in straight away. You just see the immediate obedience and expression of witness to the grace of Jesus in this guy getting baptized. Now, that's what baptism is. And I, I don't say this to a guilt any of us who haven't made that step yet, just to encourage us. When we do baptisms here, it is a party. It is, it is my favorite thing we do here. It, it is amazing. We, people get go under the water, we clap, we sing, we shout. It is a party. It is such a good time for us to celebrate the redeeming grace of God and the washing clean of sins of people, people's lives. And they're a choice to publicly say, I'm with him and church, I'm with you. It's a beautiful thing. If you don't know what baptism is, we believe in the full immersion. So that's not the sprinkling like salt bay water thing. We believe in immersion underwater into the name of Jesus as a picture of what he's done to save us. And just a simple, silly illustration I can give of what we're doing, what we're saying, what we're proclaiming when we get baptized is maybe just this. Again, another plane story. So if you get, go to the airport, you get in a plane, and you go to wherever, Cape Town, Durban, whatever it is. Simple question. What relationship to the plane do you need to have for it to get you from A to B? You can't be in on top of the plane. You're not meant to be under the plane. You're not meant to be holding onto the wings, right? You're supposed to be in the plane. And when you're in the plane, you're not like, you know, like blowing the plane along. You're just sitting. You're resting. You're trusting the plane is going to do all the work to get you from A to B. And it's, it's an imperfect illustration. But what I'm saying is when you're getting baptized, there's nothing magical about the water. 
all we're doing is we're saying we're putting our faith in the one, Jesus. We're putting ourselves in him, as it were, and saying that we fully trust him to do all the work to get us from A to B. He's going to do all the work to bring us from death to life. We're putting all our trust in him and all our hope in him. And we're getting baptized as a sort of picture of how he washes us clean and takes away our sins. We get inside of him and we can rest that he will do all the work. You see how baptism puts the gospel on display? It's so beautiful. It witnesses to the grace of Jesus. And I just want to encourage us. I think many of us, sometimes we overcomplicate it. We, we think we need to get ready for this thing. Like there's nothing magical about the water. It's just a, sim- it's just a, it's just a symbol. It's just, a, it's just water. We don't need to understand more before we get baptized. We don't need to become a super Christian before we get baptized. It's just something we do to express our allegiance to Jesus in the form of a local church, in the form of baptism in a local church. It's just an immediacy of baptism here. What would keep me from being baptized? So this guy says, it's a great question to ask yourself. If you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, no guilt, but just be honest about that question. Maybe answer it for yourself. Like, what would keep you from being baptized? What is it? Is it, is it lies that you feel you need to know more or you need to be better? Or maybe, maybe you were christened as a child and you just feel like being baptized would be like a a betrayal of your family. Like, no, no, it's, it's, it's simply an obedience to Jesus, an expression of celebration with your church family. You get to just say, yes, man, God has done it. It's like wearing a wedding ring. It's just a picture of what we've been entered into, this marriage with Jesus. Puts the gospel on display. And we see the witness continuing here. The resultant joy, it uses the word joy specifically here. There's great celebration and joy. The Ethiopian is joyful and he's celebrating, he's rejoicing. And uh, we don't know much about this guy after this event, but, and I'm not going to quote and whatever, but there's an African historian a couple centuries later called Eusebius who wrote about this guy and his claim was that God used him in the evangelization of Ethiopia in incredible ways. And the gospel grew even here. It's, it's amazing that he got this picture and he couldn't help himself but want to multiply and do in others' lives what God has done in his life. And so he becomes a man of prayer and saying, God, how would you use me? God, who would you speak to? God, who, who needs the gospel? Who are you pointing out? Who are you at work in preparing to trust in Jesus? Just an encouragement for us today. I'd love us to grow in this, fam. I was so convicted this week of praying more into this, being more open to the Spirit's leading, being more courageous, being less introverted, and being more bold and risking it. Let's be a people of evangelism. Let's just trust God to save and do great things. Let's just risk it. It's worth it. God is going to do amazing things for your own joy, for my own joy and for his glory, and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you once again today.
that you came and you sought us out. Father, we would have never came looking for you. In our sin, we were blind, we were dead, we were uninterested, but you came looking for us. And you helped us look to and trust in the name of Jesus and you filled us with your spirit and you made us new. You made us your children. We just want to say again, thank you for that. That's not something we could have earned. It's not something we could have ever been good enough for. We are at the mercy of your grace. And in your kindness, you chose to come and seek and save us. Turn us from, you turned us from death to life. You made us your children. We just celebrate that. We say thank you, God. Thank you that you are the evangelistic God who works in our hearts and helps us look to the sun. God, we want to pray again just for Joburg, that our mission statement wouldn't just be a bunch of nice words, but that genuinely you would breathe on them and that we really would see more Joburgers come to love, follow, and enjoy Jesus. We just want to, we really want to see more people put their faith in Jesus. Just the simple gospel. We just pray that you would do that, God. We pray that you would convict us, empower us, help us remember our identity as ambassadors and laborers in your kingdom. Give us words when we don't have the words. Give us boldness to just risk it. Help us live on mission with you, God. Thank you that when people trust the name of Jesus, they will be saved. Thank you, Jesus, that your gospel is so sufficient and powerful. We can't add to it. We don't need to um, like help people or put some any magic spell on, peop- on people or, or for you to come and work in your power. It, it has been accomplished once and for all by your blood. And in the outpouring of your spirit and the hearts of men, you save people. You help people look to you. We pray that you would do that again. Even this morning, God. Maybe for some of us who came here this morning spiritually hungry. God, would you satisfy our hearts by helping us look and trust in the name of Jesus. We look to you again, God. We know that life only comes from you. We confess that all the things we look to in this life will never satisfy. Only you can save. Thank you that your blood is sufficient to save us. We trust in you again this morning. In Jesus' name.